Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. On Good Authority has had over a million downloads, regularly appears on the top 100 career podcast list, and has been named one of the best publishing podcasts by LA Weekly and Kindlepreneur. Please welcome OG Authority host, New York Times bestselling author, Anna David. There are people who launch books, end up just having a nice thing to put on their shelves. Then there are people who launch books that transform their careers and their lives. As a former member of the first group, I strongly urge you to be part of the second. In this show, I talk to entrepreneurs and authors about how to intentionally launch the book that will serve as the best business card and marketing tool you've ever had. Get ready for takeoff. Well, hello and welcome to the podcast that wants you to have your cake and eat it too. In fact, it's a podcast that's a huge fan of really all kinds of cake except coconut cake. Um, basically, it's a podcast that's all about how you can be creatively creatively fulfilled by writing books, but also have that book uh, not leave you, bleed you dry, take your heart and your soul and your money and leave you wanting more. It's about controlling your destiny with a book. And okay, nobody's better at doing that than the guest that I'm going to introduce you to momentarily. It's a re-release of a previous episode. So, so good. But if you're interested in just this topic in general, I bet you'd love my book on good authority. I bet you'd love my book to business class. You can get that as well as the show notes for this episode by going to on good authority pod. Dot com. Now, I teased it and it's true. This guy, Ben Mesrick is his name. He wrote, he's written some books that have been made into movies you may have seen, like The Social Network. Yeah, 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 yeah. This, he is so successful with turning his books into movies that if he writes a treatment and he gives it to Hollywood producers and they're not interested, he doesn't even write the book. This guy has got it dialed in. So, how do you go from being a struggling novelist uh, that nobody's ever heard of to Aaron Sorkin feverishly waiting for you to finish your book so he and David Fincher can turn it into an Oscar-winning movie? Well, that is in this episode. So uh, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ben Mesrick. Okay, well, so basically you have the career that 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 we all want is what it comes down to. And yet you're not hateable. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, I try, you know, to, I try I, not to be hateable. No, <laughs> you know, everything has happened in my career by accident and luck and, and, and timing. And there's been just a lot of really, you know, crazy moments. So um, I'm, I'm just happy and lucky and, and fortunate all along. And it's just been a blast. So I'm happy to <laughs> tell you any stories you want to hear. 
Well, I was reading, you know, you've been getting press for so many years. And I was reading this old story, I think in the Boston Globe about like, you know, Maybach flies him out to parties and, you know, different people send him clothes and, and all of that. Is your life still like that? Was that true? And yeah, that's all. It got crazy for a while. Um, and, you know, I still get flown around like this weekend. I have two separate sort of parties I'm supposed to be flown to, although COVID put a big crimp in all of that sort of thing. But yeah, you know, when you do a, a, a like a book tour, there are, there are definitely clothing sponsors that want me to wear their clothes and suits. But all, a lot of that has to do with my wife. My wife is very, very good at, um, you know, cultivating these relationships and throwing these book parties and sort of a lot of authors come to me like, how did you do this? And I'm always like, Tanya did all that. I didn't, I just sit in my room and write. And she's, um, you know, she had a TV show in Boston for a little while. She had a fashion line in Boston. She's done a lot of amazing things. So she's kind of cultivated this, this really great network of people, but on the, on the sort of, you know, yeah. I mean, the other thing is I write books um, for gambling type personalities. A lot of hedge funders like my stuff. Um, So there's a lot of people in the finance world who read my stuff. And so in that world, when there's an intersection between the finance world and the Hollywood world, where all of that craziness, you know, comes about. So yeah, it's, it's been, it's been, gosh, 15 years of, of crazy parties and stuff like that. Ah, that, I mean, you know, mostly it's the, you know, the writers were on the outside being like, Hey, could you let me in? And they're like, sorry. Right. Oh, I've, I've been through that as well. Let's, let's say I've had my, my battles with certain Hollywood types of trying to get into, you know, the premiere of my own movie. That, there's been incidents like that too. But that in true? general, um, there was an incident with Scott Rudin way back when with the social network. But Scott Rudin is a, a character, uh, you know, himself. And then, and I'm sure there's lots of, lots of stories about him. But in general, um, I've been very fortunate. You know, I've worked with really amazing people. And, and I think that's the key is that the only real power a writer has is who they sell their project to. And once you sell your project, you have to assume that you have no power. Um, so you want to sell it to people who are going to treat you like a partner or treat you like, you know, part of the, the team are going to take you on the ride with them. Um, and so when I'm making my deals, uh, it's not just the dollars, you know, you're looking at who is buying this project and, and what do they want to do with it? And, and are they people you want to hang out with and other people you want to work with? And I don't think I would sell a project today to people I didn't want to hang out with. Um, and that's different in the beginning of your career. In the beginning of your career, you sell a project to anybody who, who offers. Um, but, but, you know, you reach a point in your career where, you know, you know that it's really important. These relationships are more important than anything else. Um, so you're always looking for that kind of special thing. You know, it's interesting. So Molly Bloom, who I, who I've known for years, she, I heard her say this thing weirdly on clubhouse, which is when she was going and uh, pitching Molly's game, she yeah. had this epiphany. I, everyone's passing. I'm reaching too low. I need to right. reach to the yeah. highest. And that's how she got to Aaron Sorkin. And I think that, that's so interesting. Um, I mean, I think that's a really smart. And, uh, Molly's that story is great. That movie. So I've always, I always get asked, you know, what books do you wish you would have written? And that was one of those books that I would have loved to have written. But would you have wanted to, to live the story that she lived? No, no. I just want to write it from the outside. I don't want to, exactly. I don't want to actually get involved with dangerous Russian mobsters. I, <laughs> I, I think that, yeah, it's just a great movie and a great story. But yeah, I think there's something to that. Um, if you can get to an Aaron Sorkin, obviously that's, that's the dream. Um, and 
And the reality of Hollywood is it takes an Aaron Sorkin to get a movie made. Um, it's extremely hard to start at the bottom in Hollywood and get something made. It happens, but it's, it's like a lottery ticket. Um, you know, 99% of the things you sell are never going to get made. And that's because it needs an A-list writer, an A-list director, and an A-list actor, and anything less than that. And it's just a struggle. It's a continuous struggle. Oh, yeah. Talking to somebody whose who's book was optioned 15 years ago. And I'm like, oh, this is so awesome. I've got it made. CAA is an agent. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, you get the email. They even had a script. Yeah. Um, and then you get the email. Um, Congratulations. Your rights have reverted back to you. And you think it's yeah, good like, until you realize. It's not good oh, yeah. so that means we're never talking to you again. Uh, so, okay. So let's talk about your journey. So you started off as like just a novelist in the same sort of, you know, terrible situation most writers are in. And then what happened? Yeah. So my story is I, I knew I wanted to be a writer since I was 12 years old. So that's all I ever wanted to do. Um, and, uh, and when I graduated from college, you know, my parents were not thrilled with that choice. Um, and so I basically uh, locked myself in an apartment for a year. My dad said, I'm not going to let you starve. But if you don't have any proof by the end of this year that that you're going to make it as a writer, you got to go to law school. <laughs> that was pretty much the conversation. So I wrote nine novels that year. I locked myself in a room and I wrote a novel a month, basically. Um, 400 page novels. I wrote round the clock. I was writing 40 pages a day, just craziness. And they were all rejected, rejected, rejected. 190 rejection slips. Had them taped to the walls like a serial killer. It's just a, a, you know, crazed writing. And eventually uh, an editor took pity on me, a guy named John Carp. Um, who's a very famous, powerful editor now. He didn't buy anything I'd written. He said, I'm not going to buy any of the crap you've been writing, but go read John Grisham and Michael Crichton and try and do what they do. So then I started writing thrillers and I wrote one book that was slightly better than the rest. And I got a literary agent. Um, so at the end of my first year, pretty much out of college, I had a literary agent and I sold my first book and nobody read it. Um, so I wrote uh, about six medical thrillers. They were like, sci-fi, medical, pop thrillers. Um, and they never, they didn't go anywhere. Um, one of them was made into a TV movie. So I did have sort of that level of success in my early 20s or mid 20s. Um, um, but my books were not selling, nobody was buying them. And then I ran into this group of MIT kids in a bar and they were going to Vegas every weekend. And it was just this crazy story. I started going to Vegas with them. I convinced the main character to sort of tell me his story. And that became Bringing Down the House, which was my first nonfiction book. And it was going to be this little book, you know, tiny first printing. Um, I had been paid less for it than I'd ever been paid for anything. Um, it was a nothing of a book because it was about Vegas. It was about cards. And this was before Vegas and cards were interesting again. Okay. Um, and I wrote an article for Wired magazine. And I got a call in the middle of the night. Phone rings. And it's a guy saying, I have Kevin Spacey on the line. And so back then, that was a better call than it would be today. <laughs> Let's just put that out there. Kevin Spacey back then was the biggest star in the world. Um, and he's like, you know, I get on the phone with him. It really was Kevin Spacey. And he said, I love this story. I, I, want, I want you to come out to L.A. So I flew out to L.A. pretty much the next day. And I met Kevin and uh, his producing Dana. partner, Dana Brunetti. Dana, right? Um, and Dana was at the time Kevin's assistant. Um, this was that far back. And they're like, we want to make a movie out of this. Um, and I was like, great. <laughs> that seems like a great idea. Um, and I asked them, well, how much, how much are you going to pay me? And they said nothing. 
<laughs> zero. And I was like, zero. And at the time, I was massively in debt um, because I had been had all these books published. They all kind of failed. I had spent every penny I'd ever made. I owed millions, two million dollars at 28 years old. I was vastly in debt. And and so basically I went to my agent. I had an agent um, through the TV movie had gotten me an agent. And I said, what well, they they want to make a movie, but they want to pay me zero. And he's like, well, let's see what we can do. And the next day he called me and said, I have an author from someone else for $750,000. So I go back to Kevin and Dana and I say, I've got this competing offer now for $750,000. And what are you guys going to pay? And Dana's like, nothing, zero, still zero. I was like, well, how can you offer me zero against $750,000? And they said, well, if you, we gave you $750,000 right now, what would you do with it? And so I was at a crazy period in my life and I was massively in debt and they knew all my stories. And I said, well, I'd probably spend all of it. And they said, we're going to do something better. We're going to actually make this movie. And Kevin is going to, you know, you can talk about Kevin in publicity. He's going to talk about you. This is going to be great for your career. So I ended up taking that deal, turning down the three quarters of a million dollars and freaking my agent out. And it, it worked. Um, the book came out and I went on the Today Show and the book was a huge bestseller. It was on the Times list for a couple of years. And the movie, although it took a number of years to get made, um, put me on the map in an enormous way. And from that moment on, I actually have sold every book I've written as a movie off of the treatment before I've written a page of the book. So I've sold something like 25 movies um, at this point, um, right off of a 10-page treatment. Um, and, and one of them happened to be The Social Network Project, which comes along a little bit later. We can get into that. But that's, that's what started me off. It was really a phone call from Kevin Space in the middle of the night because of an article in Wired Magazine, and it was my first um, it became a feature film that actually got made because there was an A-list actor attached, you know? So two questions. So the Today Show was interested because of Kevin Spacey's involvement? No, I had actually booked the Today Show um, randomly. This publicist at the publisher had gotten me. It was, the, you know, the only real publicity I had ever yeah. gotten. And it happened to be a really big show. Um, but I was able to talk about Kevin during it. And it, I think it, I think that was helpful. Who knows? Uh, then I went on CNBC and at the time, CNBC Power Lunch was a really big deal. And this was a book about gambling and everybody who watched CNBC was a gambler. And so I think the Today Show and CNBC together is what really made that book just go crazy. I remember it went to number one on Amazon and it sold out in the first three hours. And it was one of those situations where they were just always trying to print books because they were always selling. And it just happens. You know, I think what was great about that story was it was the perfect one sentence. You know, it was six MIT kids who took Vegas for millions. And it was an easy sentence for every news show to throw at the end of a news report. So it was on every single channel all the time. And there's this group of MIT kids who took Vegas for millions. It's like the perfect sentence. And I think that easy sentence is what just turned that into some moment, basically. Um, but on the Hollywood side, that movie uh, really opened enormous doors for me because I, I decided right there and then that I wanted to have a Hollywood career on top of that every book I would write had wow. to be a movie. And, and so I basically became close, very close to my Hollywood agent at the time. And I said to him, you know, every project I'm going to do, we're going to come out here, we're going to pitch it all over town. Um, and we're going to develop these relationships with lots of producers and lots of studios. Um, and that's, that's the way I want to do books. Um, and, I, and that became the model for me. And so 
you know, even today, if, if, I, if someone tells me a story idea and I think it's great, I'll, I'll interview the people, I'll write 10 pages, and I will take it out to Hollywood. And if I can't get a studio deal, then I won't write the book. Um, I, won't, I won't even look at it. That's it. I'm done. Um, so that's the way I do my projects now. And have for 20 years. And knowing, you know, as you said, how impossible it is to get things made. It's like, it's just like, I, I, I don't mean to be woo-woo, but it's like you made this decision and it happens. And obviously you've got a serious feel for what people are going to respond to. Um, but so question. So, um, you know, rumor is that like, so everybody wanted the social network. And so like, they're like, oh, people went, the producer went to the 21 party in Woodham. Was that Dana? Is that true? Dana. So Dana and I became very close. Um, very, <laughs> there's so many stories about Dana. Do you know Dana at all? I, I met him through Dana. Mike years ago. Before, I think when he was Kevin Spacey's assistant, or he had just become yes. a producer. Dana is one of those people that, um, it's almost like he's a mythical creature. I love Dana. Dana is a genius. Um, he's also terrifying. Um, he can be he can be completely insane. And I think if you talk to enough people, you'll hear so many crazy stories about Dana. But Dana and I were like brothers from the very beginning. There's no question about that. When I went out to L.A. that first time and Dana, Dana and Kevin picked me up at the airport in like Kevin's little Mercedes. And um, and uh, the first place they took me were driving along. And I'm a kid from Boston. I mean, I've never been to, I had been to Hollywood a few times, but I was not, you know, in that scene. And we're driving along and, and we pull up to this huge mansion and I recognized that it was a Playboy mansion and it was literally the first place they drove me and we sat down and it was like movie night. And, and it was these moments where I think Dana and, and, you know, really, really, um, we got along extremely well and we definitely worked as partners together selling, I think, oh gosh, eight or nine movies in a row we sold together. Um, but the social network was a really interesting situation because what happened with the social network was, um, again, a random moment. I, I had become known for writing these true stories. Um, so I would get pitched a lot of stories. Every time some young college kid pulled off a scheme or, or somebody did a crime, I would get a call. They would either reach me on the phone or an email or something like that. And it was the middle of the night and I got an email from a Harvard senior and it said, my best friend founded Facebook and no one's ever heard of him. This is in Boston. And I went out for a drink in a bar and in walked Eduardo Saverin, the real Eduardo. And he sits down and he goes, Mark Zuckerberg fucked me. Starts the conversation like that and tells me this completely insane story. So I think this is awesome. I go and I actually found the Winklevi twins on the internet. I just found them on Facebook. I started meeting with them. I started meeting with Sean Parker. And I wrote a 14-page book proposal which I called Face Off. <laughs> it was a horrible title. <laughs> um, and I sent it to my agent. Um, and he sent it out to, I think, 11 or 12 publishers. And it leaked onto the internet. So it leaked onto Gawker. Um, Gawker printed my entire uh, book proposal, something I'd never seen before. I don't know if they'd ever printed a full book proposal before. And everything went crazy. Um, Facebook freaked out and was like, what are you writing? And they were coming after me. And I had sent it to Dana. Um, because Dana and I were like brothers, I would send him every single thing. And we had sold, uh, eight or eight movies by that point. We had sold all these books that I had written, um, that never got made, but we had sold, you know, a, a number of books together. Um, 
And, and Dana thought it was cool. I do think Dana, I, I don't remember for sure, but I think his first response was similar to my mom's, which is like, I'm not sure anybody will watch a movie about Facebook, but he definitely <laughs> thought it was cool. Yeah. Um, but that day when it leaked on Gawker, Aaron Sorkin saw it um, and David Fincher saw it. And Aaron Sorkin called and said he wanted to write it. Um, and David Fincher called and said he wanted to direct it. And so then you had Dana and Kevin because um, Dana and Kevin were working together, that already sent them proposals. So they came from their angle. They met with Scott Rudin, who came with the Aaron Sorkin situation, um, and Mike DeLuca, um, who was at um, Sony, MGM, um, and um, Amy, Amy, right? Amy, um, Amy Pascal, and that became the team. Um, and so it was this incredible moment as a writer, like that's the dream team at that point in time. There was no better team of people. And to be frank, nobody else could have made that movie because you were dealing with Facebook, you know, a billion dollar corporation. You were dealing with huge egos, you know, pe people who are incredibly um, known for taking over a movie set. Right. Um, it just it was it was it was one of those just magnificent kind of situations to get into. Um, and uh, and it was wild. And I was I was there for the whole thing. And it was great. And yeah, Dana, Dana was a big part of it. Um, and, and, and DeLuca, Mike, who is just awesome. I love Mike. I think he's one of the best people in Hollywood. Um, and he had done 21 as well. So basically, you know, Dana and Mike um, were involved again this time. Um, yeah. Recently, I went to the social network premiere. I was living in New York at the time. And the New York Post assigned me the junket. And I interviewed um, <laughs> Jesse. And oh, yeah. Did the whole junket thing. And um, that was some premiere. I still remember being like, oh, they've spent some money. Yeah. I mean, they went all out. And I will say it was just one of those situations where they really knew that they had something special, like a kind of movie that's going to last decades. And it was a cultural moment. I mean, I don't think there was a single newspaper in the world that didn't cover it or magazine or anything like that. It was just one of those things. And, um, you know, I think what's really interesting to look back on it now is Facebook wasn't that big a deal before that movie. It was just this company. But what I saw, and I think what a number of people who made the movie saw was that this was a moment that was going to change all of our lives. Um, and we were documenting it. You know, we were, we were creating the mythology of this world changing technology, um, which is to sitting here today, it's clear that it, we were correct, uh, that Facebook has led to everything that's happening in the world, good and bad, <laughs> you know? Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's just a, it was a spectacular moment. Um, but for me personally, it was obviously life-changing um, and, and just such a ride and accidental. You know, the book was Accidental Billionaires, but I think that most of my career has been things like that where I fall or stumble into a story and it just becomes something immense. Um, so yeah, it's been wild for sure. So finding these stories, you know, obviously you said, you know, people come to you, they're pitching you stories, but I'm assuming a lot of these you're finding on your own. How are you doing that? And what is the thing that, you know, makes it? Yeah. So the majority of my stories have been pitched to me. I will say only a few of them of ones that I've gone out and found. Um, I, I basically sift through pitches uh, now on Twitter, but whatever. I mean, something like the GameStop story, which I just wrote that book. I mean, that everybody saw. So you could say I, I looked for it, but I was getting tons of people writing me saying you should be writing, you should be writing it. But in general, I'm looking for something that you can sum up in one sentence that the whole world will be interested in, um, that can make a great movie. So it has to have great visuals. It has to have incredible Shakespearean type themes to it. 
um, exotic locales or that sort of drama, you know, conflict. I mean, it's the magic is it has to be a story that not everyone already knows. Um, and yet everyone would want to know or be interested in it. And that's the tricky thing. Usually something that we've all heard of. I mean, every day people will email me about things. I'm like, yeah, but there's probably a hundred writers writing that story right now. I don't want to be one of a dozen, you know, Wall Street Journal writers trying to get this story. Um, I want to have the main character come to me and say, look at this crazy thing I did. And me realize, oh man, everyone's going to want to hear about that. Um, and that's what I'm really looking for. But it's got to be simple. It's got to have a big theme and it's got to be an origin of something life-changing. Um, so the things that I've written about to me that have worked have been stories about big, big events or moments or technologies or shifts in the cultural moment um, that even though my book was written 10 years ago, people will find a reason to read it 10 years from now. Um, so that's hard. It's not easy. So yeah. when I look back on the books that I've written, I think Vegas and Bringing Down the House is one. I think, you know, Social Network is certainly one. I think Bitcoin Billionaires is going to be one of those stories that people are going to, and the entire crypto world is built a lot on that story, um, which is really interesting. And as we make that movie, I think it'll be a big moment. I do think the GameStop story is going to be a big moment of a story. I wrote a book called Wooly about the woolly mammoth coming back to life and the scientist at Harvard is making one. And although it didn't find itself yet, that story, I think that's going to be a big story in the future. Um, so that's really what I'm looking for all the time is, is these big kind of, um, but it, again, it has to be able to sell as a movie. So I have to be able to write a 10 page treatment that when I take it out to studios, there's going to be a dozen of them bidding on it. And, and I feel like to me, that justifies me writing the book. If I can't get, and there's been moments where I've sent out a pitch that I just thought was awesome and I haven't gotten the movie deal. And then I put it aside and I say, you know what? I'm not going to write it. Um, I'm not going to, I can't get excited about it. Uh, because in my opinion, a book is a platform. The book is a story. Um, and, and many writers feel differently. And I think that's cool too. But for me, the book is a platform for this story that hopefully has a much bigger life than that. Um, because a book is one component of it. I want to see a movie and a television show. And I want to see all the magazines writing about it. I want it to become something that the whole world talks about. And you don't, it doesn't always happen. You know, it's happened two out of 25 books so far, but that's what I'm trying to do every time. Good ratio for what you're talking about, which doesn't happen in most people's lifetime ever. Right. Um, right. I, yeah. and, and, you know, in thinking about it, it also requires a certain, not psychic skill, but back when, you know, with the Winklevoss and the Bitcoin, I was like, who cares about Bitcoin today? I'm like, what? So, I mean, yeah you are onto these things early. Yeah, I mean, and, and this goes back to Michael Crichton, my worship of Michael Crichton. I, I've, I used to keep all of Michael Crichton's books on my desk. I would, and I think what he was a genius of was picking something that two years from now we would all be talking about. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what I'm always trying to do. And it's hard, you can't really do it, but I think I get that feeling. You know, I get that, that, that tingle, that sense that something is really important. Um, and with Bitcoin, you know, listen, people have been pitching me Bitcoin stories for years and I've been turning it down. I'm like, I'm not interested. This is math. This is geeky. There's a bunch of weirdos sitting in their rooms. Um, but then when I heard the Winklevi were at the center of this story, it blew my mind because I was like, now those guys, I can wrap a movie around. Yeah. Um, and as I started meeting with them and I spent six months just hanging out with them, um, I was like, yeah, this is this is huge. This is a big moment in history. Um, sadly, I didn't go buy a bunch of Bitcoin because I'd be really rich right now. But I, I definitely saw that. I knew crypto was going to change all our lives. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think I, I do have sort of a spidey sense about it. Um, and um, 
yeah, it's it's hard to sort of know where what it is, you know, what you can put your finger on and say, okay, that's the next big thing. But um, but it is something I'm always looking for. Well, in in the crypto, the Web three space. So you did an NFT thing with this latest book. Yeah. So now I have this is this is actually new and it's sort of separate from from meeting the Winklevoitians and becoming friends with them. Um, they started telling me you got to look into NFTs. These are really cool. So then I ended up launching an NFT project um, that's going to be a movie, or I'm writing the script for it. Um, and I dropped an NFT line, which sold out, and we're doing three lines of NFTs. Um, and anybody who owns the NFTs gets to own a piece of a screenplay I'm writing about the NFT space. And I'm hoping that becomes a platform for other writers um, to come on and drop NFTs and, and build their careers that way. I think the NFT is going to give writers and artists and musicians another way. Of, of, of taking a community, building a community and having the community support them. Um, so I, this is the first time I've kind of stepped into something rather than just writing about it. Um, and uh, it's been really wonderful and it's been incredible and, and fun, but it did evolve from the sort of Bitcoin story. Yeah. Well, what does that mean, owning part of a screenplay? Yeah, it means that the people who are own one of each of my three NFT drops, we've dropped two so far and the third one is coming, um, are going to get 50% of, of the screenplay. So I'm going to write a screenplay um, and partnered with the community. We're going to try and make the movie. I'm going to sell it to a studio or I'm going to make it on our own. And uh, the, the money that comes in is going to go back into the community. And, and it doesn't, so they don't own the rights to the movie in any way. No, they don't own the rights to the movie. They own an NFT that gives them partial um, you know, ownership of the project, essentially. So it's not like, uh, you know, they can say, uh, you know, we want this star to be in it or this star to be in it, that kind of thing. Um, but it does mean that if I sell it for a million dollars, half a million dollars goes back into the NFT community. Um, so it's, it's an interesting model and we'll see if it works. It's kind of brand new. Um, you know, this is the Wild West, the NFT world. There's no real rules yet about how this works. And there's me, there's Neil Strauss, who's doing something. Gary Vee, there's some other people trying to do something in this space. Um, but this is, the, this is the model that we think will work going forward. So we'll see. We'll see what happens as I write the screenplay and, and see how it, how it works. Yeah, I, this is actually, I, I've been doing a couple episodes on NFTs and writers and really exploring that world. I didn't even know we were going to get into it until I started doing my research. But in terms of the screenplay, you don't normally write the screenplays, though. So I've written a few screenplays. I just wrote one. I had a book called The Midnight Ride that came out. Uh, few months ago, um, which actually sold the Spielberg at Amblin. And they let me write the first draft. So I actually gave them, gave, you know, a, a screenplay to Steven Spielberg just a month ago, which is a little terrifying and intimidating. Um, I wrote a draft of a, I, I wrote for the show Billions. Uh, so I'm a, I was a producer and writer on that. So I wrote episode three of last season, season five um, of Billions. And uh, I've written uh, an independent, I've probably written about five screenplays at this point. Um, so it's not you know the main thing that I do, but I've definitely written a few of them. And do you still, um, you know, lock yourself away when you've got the story and you're like, bye, bye, Tanya, bye, kids, see you in two months? Like, how does that work? I mean, I listen, it has definitely gotten harder. So actually, in the beginning of the pandemic, I mean, I wrote two books in the first six months. I mean, I was uh, really writing, you know, at a really great clip. Now I'm definitely, you know, I have a sequel to the midnight ride due next month, which is becoming challenging. <laughs> um, I think that, yes, I, I, my process is uh, I spend a large amount of my time researching and, and doing the outline. So that's kind of the biggest time 
commitment for me is actually researching it, talking to everybody I need to do, getting all the information I need, and then writing a very stiff outline, the kind of outline that I know every chapter, I know what happens in every chapter, I know the page numbers of every chapter, and I never even miss by a page. So I put together a really tight skeleton. Then is when I start writing. And it starts off, you know, a few hours a day, but I don't write by time, I write by pages. Um, I'm one of those writers that believes, you know, you say, I'm going to write five pages today. And, and if I'm done in an hour, I'm done in an hour, I'm done five hours, I'm done in five hours. So I start off with like six pages a day. Um, and then as I get into the heat of it, uh, I'm up to like 12 to 14 pages a day. And towards the end of that process, yeah, I lock myself up for a couple of weeks um, and finish up the book. But, you know, it's always a struggle, as you know, writing every book is a struggle. And even though I've written 20 something, five of them, it never gets that much easier. <laughs> I know what works and what doesn't. I know how to write. Um, there's very little editing for me at this point. Pretty much, I, I write the book, I hand it in. It's pretty much done. Um, the editor will come back but and I'll make it. Pass. <clears throat> I mean, I, I do edit it, but the work is really the writing of the book. I'm not one of those people who edits and edits and edits. First of all, I don't edit. I, I hand in the book that I finish. I don't edit my own books at all. Um, so I write a draft. It's done. I send it to the publisher. Then they'll come back with, with stuff, you know, and they'll be like, this chapter, add something here. Can you put a little bit more in there? And I'll make those additions. But the, the, when I write to the end of my manuscript, I don't even look at it. I don't read it. Um, I, I literally put it in the mail. I hit the, the send, um, which is crazy, right? But honestly, that started a long time ago uh, with Bringing Down the House. I didn't edit Bringing Down the House once. Um, it went to the publisher and, and then the publisher had some changes to make, but I don't self-edit myself. Um, and it's weird. I, I can't, I can't, I can't edit myself because I'm, I'm, I'm a happy writer. <laughs> so I, it's funny. I have a, my, my friend from college is a guy named Scott Stossel, um, who was my roommate in college. He, he's one of the people who runs the Atlantic monthly. Um, he wrote my age of anxiety, brilliant book. Yeah. And Scott is one of those writers who's miserable. <laughs> who sits there and he's a genius, but he'll write and edit and write and edit. And it's just this years and years of misery. And, and that's, I'm the opposite of that. I'm like, da, 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 da. yeah, good. It's great. It's perfect. And I send it in. Um, because, ah, oh, am I clicking again? Sorry. It's when I move. Yeah. Stop moving so much. He's just speculating wildly. Very moving. I know. But I think for me, the key is I'm not a perfectionist. I don't believe in being perfect. I don't want to be perfect. Um, good is good. Um, and so I never try and perfect what I'm doing. I just want to get it written. Um, so when I, when I'm going on a story, I write it to the end and then I send it in. Here's my question. Well, I mean, you're writing very clean copy clearly. I mean, a lot of people's first drafts are like, wait, what is that word? Um, yeah, I mean, if, if I went back to sort of 20 years ago, I'm sure it would have been worse. <laughs> but yeah. now at this point, I think I, I know what I'm doing. So yeah. My big question, and you've been so generous with your time, we have to wrap up, yeah. but in terms of this outline, you are getting new sources as you're working on it, right? So the outline does evolve and change, or are, are no. you shut down? Uh, the so uh, the other thing is I write very quickly, right? So, um, you know, eight weeks is a book, not a year. Yeah. So I do all of my research before I start writing. Um, I've, I've interviewed everybody I can interview, got all the legal documents I can get. I've got all the information I can get. I write the outline on that information and then I start writing. So once I start writing, um, there shouldn't be any new information. If, you know, if it's a developing situation, if like the GameStop story was a little different, 
in that I was writing it while it was happening. So yeah, in that respect, that one, you sort of had to go back and not go back and change anything, but, but it certainly evolved that I was writing it. Um, but no, um, something like the, the accidental billionaires, for instance, um, I had written this proposal. I had done the research and then Aaron Sorkin, David Fincher stepped in, but I hadn't written the book yet. So suddenly I had this massive movie developing. So I locked myself in a hotel. I went over to the, the Western hotel in Boston and Aaron Sorkin came into Boston and I literally wrote, um, 11 weeks. I wrote that book, um, never really left the hotel and I would hand him chapters, um, as I went. So no, all the information was done before I start writing. Uh Um, the research stage of it is, is usually, you know, it's complete, um, before I start the actual writing. Cause to me, the writing is like this, you know, frenzied, furious, crazed, you know, six pages, 10 pages, 14 pages, 20 pages a day, music blaring, the room is pitch black. I'm like, it's a, it's like a rock concert to me that I'm, I'm performing. Um, it's like that moment where you could be godlike, I think, in that one brief moment in your life when you're not captured by all your anxieties and, 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 and you know, whatever it is that, that doesn't work in your life, you just sit and you write and you're creating. And for me, that's, uh, it's almost trance-like. Um, so I don't want to have to stop for anything. Once I start writing, I do not stop until I get to the last page. Um, cause I'm a big believer in that's where you go wrong. Right. So if there's research, I haven't done yet, I just whiz through it and, and in the, and then we'll find a way to fix it in post. Right. Um, I will not stop once I start writing the book. See, you've already absorbed everything. It's not like you're like, Oh, Eduardo said, but like it's in there and you're, yeah, just- I know every chapter. I know every character. I know, you know, I know everything that I need to know. I've got photos of every room that is in the story. I've got, you know, either blueprints from the internet or I've been there myself with a video camera. Like I do real crazy levels of research. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, there, there's no sort of saying, Oh shoot, I don't know what this is or what, what happened here. Um, yeah. So for anybody who's, who's listening and dreams of having their book made into uh, a movie or a TV show or whatever it is, what, well, well, first of all, in terms of rights, when you're doing it like this, how many rights do you need? Who's right? Uh, that's a good question. So that's usually the way I look at it. That's the movie studios problem. Um, so if it's a public figure, you don't need any rights. Um, you know, if you're writing about Mark Zuckerberg or you're writing about, you know, the, the GameStop story, you're not really going to need anybody's rights to do that. Um, certainly not for the book. When the studio wants to make a movie, they're going to need certain rights um, if there aren't a lot of news articles about those characters. So for instance, for the MIT story, these are a bunch of unknown kids who played blackjack. Um, A movie studio would need those rights. Um, An author of a book wouldn't necessarily need rights, but I certainly didn't want anybody pissed off and unhappy with the story. So I sat down with everybody who I was going to write about and said, I'm going to write about, is this cool? Um, and I think for the main character, I did end up making a deal with him for his rights, um, to make it easier to sell the movie and that kind of thing. Um, but usually I don't think so much about that. Um, but the other thing is don't forget I've sold the movie. So the studio comes in pretty early and starts talking to the main characters and figuring that out. Um, I've also had situations where a producer will come to me with a story 
and they've already locked up rights. Um, that's what my book, 37th Parallel, about this crazy UFO hunter, Bo Flynn, who does all the Rocks movies, who did Road Notice. Bo is wonderful. Bo came to me. He's like, I've got this great story. You've got to take a look at this. And I flew out to Colorado and was out in the mountains hunting UFOs with this guy. And it was this incredible experience. And that became, uh, I thought, a really cool book. And so I didn't really think about, um, you know, the rights. I don't, I don't think about it um, because... For the most part, I'm not writing about unknowns. Um, but less, someone emailed me and was like, I have this incredible story. Um, if I wanted to tell it, um, it would have to be a situation where they're on board. Um, it wouldn't be the kind of thing, well, I go to them and say, I want to tell your story. That's not the kind of writer I am. So right. for the people you're talking about who are like, oh, I saw this in the news. That looks like a great story. I need to go get that guy's rights. I would never do that. Right. Um, that person would have to come to me and say, I've got this great story, I want you to tell it. And I would say, I I'm, I'd love to tell it. Um, that's all there is to it, I'll tell it. I'm not going to buy anything from you. I'll tell it, it'll become a big movie, you'll become incredibly famous, and, and, and we'll all win. <laughs> that's yeah. the deal I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, but yes, the studio does often have to come in and figure out rights, but they don't actually need rights for a true story. Um, they only need rights if it's not a true story about somebody. Um, right. So. Yeah, it's complicated. I, I definitely would suggest that a starting out writer doesn't try and do that. Um, I, I think there are so many great stories to tell that don't necessarily involve buying somebody's rights. Um, why would you choose that? Unless, you know, you had a certain reason why you were going to write that story. Um, but there are a million journalists out there trying to do those stories, right? And it's not like they're getting anybody's rights. If you open the Wall Street Journal tomorrow, there'll be a dozen stories in there. Nobody's been paid for any rights. If a studio decides to make that story, the studio will come in and buy the rights. But none of those writers got anybody's rights. And same with podcasters now. Right. Yeah. I mean, in terms of you don't need people's rights. To tell yeah, they're telling all kinds of stories. Yeah. But eventually, if a studio wants to make a movie off something, they'll figure that out. But that's not really my role. Um, so, so, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't really think about it that much. And so, well, this has been fantastic. I usually end with, you know, how do you want people to reach you? But really, you only want people to reach you if they've, if they've got an incredible story and they want you to tell it, right? Yeah, I mean, I love people. Talk I'm on Twitter. You know, I, I think uh, that's the easiest place to find me. Um, I have a Discord for the NFT stuff. So if people are interested in that, um, there's benmesrick.com or benmesricknft.com. Um, but really, I, I think Twitter has become sort of the go-to place for people to pitch me stories. And that's yeah. what people do. Um, and, and it's, it's, you know, I, I love young writers coming and talking about writing and stuff like that. So I'm happy to answer any questions anybody has. Um, but uh, I think it's a great moment for writers. I think this is probably in the, in my entire career, this is the moment where there are the most places to sell something. Um, this is probably the golden age for, for people starting out in writing uh, to me, because there's more places to sell it than there ever were in history um, and more places to tell a story. Um, than there ever were before. So, you know, there's streaming, there's podcasts, there's just a million different ways to do it, self-publishing and Kindle and um, Substack. And, I, I, you know, it's an infinite number compared to when I started out, you sent query letters to agents. That was pretty much the only ball game, right? By the mail. You yeah. went to the post office every day with your staff, yeah. right? Um, so, you know, I, I, I think there's just a lot of opportunity now. Yeah, a I, I, previous guest said uh, because of the NFT revolution, the writers haven't been celebrated like this since the Renaissance. That was what she said. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Right? I like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Well, Ben, thank you so much for your time. Listeners, thank you for listening. And um, it's just been delightful. Thanks so much for listening to the show. And now a request from me. If you've ever used any of the tips or techniques you've heard about from the show, please take a few seconds to give the show a rating or review and find out all about how my company, Legacy Launchpad, writes and launches books at www.legacylaunchpadpub.com. See you next week.